Sir Rhodes Boyson died in 2012, which seems remarkable, because surely such a figure was born, lived and died in the 19th century. But no, Sir Rhodes was with us until 2012. If you're not familiar with him, he was a Conservative politician, the MP for Brent North, and also held various ministerial posts, his first with the Department of Education. Before entering politics, Sir Rhodes was a teacher and headmaster. Now imagine that, a minister being given a post in which he has genuine knowledge and honest experience. I say that Sir Rhodes seemed to belong to the 19th century because he held some very traditional views. Some might say they were old-fashioned, some might say they were downright offensive. And he also sported splendid mutton chops. But what were these traditional views of his and what on earth did they have to do with nuclear war? Sir Rhodes Boyson caused a bit of a stir when he gave a speech in 1986 which said single parents were responsible for unleashing evil upon the country. He said that those who chose to raise children as a single parent were creating, quote, probably the most evil product of our time. Well, I'm a child of a single parent and miserable, cynical, uh, cold-hearted... Basically dead inside, yeah, but not evil. An angry reader wrote into The Guardian the next day to say, Sir, as a product of a single-parent family, yet to show any satanic tendencies, I feel qualified to ask Dr Rhodes Boyson to take his foot out of his mouth and put a sock in it. Neither was Sir Rhodes in favour of homosexuality, saying it was wrong, and that the AIDS epidemic would die out if we could only abolish gay sex. He was also in favour of corporal punishment in schools and of the death penalty. Now, I don't want to suggest that people of a certain vintage and with certain titles will, will have a certain collection of views, but take a guess at Sir Rhodes' view on the idea of trendy, lefty teachers in the 1980s bringing talk of nuclear disarmament into the classroom. Do you think he approved? Go on, guess. In the 1980s, a new subject began popping up in some schools, peace studies. And yes, I suppose it does sound a bit wishy-washy, what we'd now call a Mickey Mouse subject. But did that justify the absolute rage it provoked? Firstly, what was peace studies? The subject was developed as an academic concern in the 60s and it made its way into classrooms by the 80s. And its lessons often dealt with the bomb and the issue of disarmament and so provoked a lot of red-hot debate. But advocates of this new subject said it was far wider than just some anti-nuclear lessons. 
It was about understanding violence and conflict, oppression and injustice. Examples of peace studies lessons in Britain in the 80s included looking at incidents of animal cruelty and trying to work out what was at the root of such violence. Another class studied a timeline of all the wars since 1945. Another, and this does seem like it was playing right into the hands of those accusing it of being a Mickey Mouse subject, showed the children slides of flowers and fountains and also of women and children fleeing war and asked the children to categorise these images as either peaceful or violent. And yes, there were also plenty of lessons which focused on the nuclear threat and the issue of disarmament. And it was this which provoked anger, rather than the surely more pertinent question of whether it was educationally worthwhile to show nippers pictures of flowers and fountains and ask if they were happy or sad when they saw the pretty flowers. But back to Rhodes Boyson, who was raging against peace studies. He said the introduction of this subject into our classrooms was like introducing appeasement and surrender and, quote, was an encouragement to lay down our arms and let anyone walk over us and destroy our society. He went on to say it was an open invitation to the Soviets to take control of the world by threatening nuclear war. He even likened peace studies to sex education, saying that it was a subject where parents should have the right to withdraw their child if they objected to it. He said... Will they be allowed to withdraw their children from something they may consider as corrupting as the excesses of unpleasant sex education? The philosopher Roger Scruton had a perhaps more measured response, saying he was suspicious of any subject which had the word studies appended to it. He said women's studies were about furthering the cause of feminism. And so whenever the word studies appeared, quote, you can be fairly certain of the ideology of those who promote them. Therefore, the argument went that peace studies would be taught by those who advocated peace. But it would be peace no matter the cost. So forget all about the lesson of the Second World War, which was that you can't appease an aggressor. We all learned that in school, I'm sure. Advocates of peace studies would be saying, let's have peace at any cost. So opponents were saying it was lefty propaganda and political indoctrination of the young. And of course, one of its strongest opponents was Rhodes Boyson, who said it was being taught by trendy teachers and cried, let the left-wingers go to Russia. He also said that teachers who wore CND badges into the classroom should be reported. Now, doesn't that sound a bit commie, reporting someone for supporting the wrong cause? The Education Secretary, Keith Joseph, was also quite keen on taking names and reporting people. He had urged parents to complain to his department directly if they felt their little darlings were being exposed to bias and indoctrination in the classroom. In fact, he was opposed to the teaching of peace studies altogether, saying that, if anything, it should be slotted into history, for example, or a politics lesson. 
and he said that allowing the introduction of this kind of brainwashing or political indoctrination was an insult to the teaching profession. But let's trust the teaching profession. I'm sure that most teachers who taught peace studies in the 80s were not raging uh, commies trying to brainwash all the children. However, of course, the newspapers like to seize on a colourful story and so there were some examples given of teachers who were perhaps being a bit subversive, a bit sneaky, perhaps trying to (laughs) persuade kids to ban the bomb. The Times told us of a teacher who organised a school trip to an open-air disco in London. But when the kids got there, they found it was actually a CND meeting. All those permission slips, happily signed by middle-class parents, sending the little kids off to an open-air disco, only to have them bundled into a CND meeting. Shocking. So who should teach children about the bomb and about the pros and cons of nuclear disarmament? Well, I'm currently writing the chapter of my book which deals with children and the nuclear threat, and there were so many studies by psychologists in the 1980s showing that kids felt their parents would not speak to them truthfully about the nuclear threat. When I was in the Welcome Library in London, I found a study showing that some older kids felt that they were annoying or worrying their parents if they asked about the bomb or asked whether a nuclear war might happen because they could see that their parents were scared. So for many children, according to these studies, the issue went unspoken and they were left to mop up scraps and snippets of knowledge from news reports or overheard conversations. Add to that a huge dose of a vivid child's imagination and is it little wonder that 1980s kids were anxious? So if parents were reluctant to talk about the subjects and if schools were being attacked when they tried it, who was going to teach children about the bomb? Was it better to just leave it unsaid and hope it'd never happen? Well, that gamble paid off, as of course the Cold War ended without turning hot. But for all us inquisitive 80s kids, we were just left to get our info where we could. I got mine from watching Threads. Maybe an honest chat with my dad would have soothed my fears, but instead I was placed in the hands of Barry Hines and Mick Jackson. And I've never been the same since. And just to let you know, we have another special episode coming up soon. A lot of you seem to enjoy the special episode a couple of weeks ago with Professor Lewis Dartnell where we discussed his book on how to rebuild civilization after an apocalypse. So I've managed to get another professor for you, this time Professor Daniel Todman, who's just published the second volume of his gigantic book, Britain's War. I'm going to interview him about life on the home front, and we'll zoom in on civilian life under bombardment. I have two copies of his book to give away and ran a contest on Twitter, The winners are Hazel Wright and Darren Jay, and I've tweeted both of you, so please DM me your name and address, and the publisher will send a copy to each of you. And if you've got any questions about life on the home front, particularly about sheltering or rationing, please let me know, and I could perhaps put some of them to Professor Todman 
in her interview. And before I go, let me say thank you to all my patrons. Remember, if you want to support the podcast, you can join my patron, which you'll find at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. This week, let me say thank you to Gordy McNair, Steve Sace, Phil Catling, Mary Freer, Ben Capper, Wynne Grant, Paul Maxwell-Walters, Sean Judge and Simon Allison. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook under Nuclear Britain. Get in touch if you have any questions about the podcast or, as I said, questions for Daniel Todman about life on the home front during the war. And I'll be back next Sunday with another episode.